0: I'm pleased to have with us today one of the most acclaimed interior designers in America. Bunny Williams has defined American style for more than 40 years. After what she terms her apprenticeship at the iconic firm Parrish Hadley, a stint that lasted 22 years, Bunny went out on her own in 1988. Since then, she has refined, updated, and amplified the idea of the American home, always with a hint of the comfort and hospitality she learned growing up in Virginia. She not only runs her own interior design firm, but she also designs furnishings and accessories for Bunny Williams Home and Ballard Designs and Outdoor Furniture for Century. She's the author of six books, as well as the editor of A Tribute to Parrish Hadley. And she is a more than generous philanthropist. Her work on behalf of the Kips Bay Show House year after year is unparalleled, and Kips Bay is only one of several organizations she actively supports. She is a huge believer in the power of education and has served as a mentor and guide to generations of younger designers. Bunny has an innate understanding of how people live and what they need in their homes. As Anna Brockway told me, no one does better floor plans than Bunny. On top of that, she's a renowned gardener and no one appreciates or celebrates the vital indoor-outdoor connection. And she's always looking ahead, recently taking on Elizabeth Lawrence as a partner to ensure her firm's continued relevance. And with all of that, she remains a truly fantastic dinner partner, opinionated, wise, witty, and fun. Welcome, Bunny. Hi, how are you? I'm so happy to have you with us. I'm kind of exhausted after reading about all of uh. you do, but <laughs> if you can do it, <laughs> I, can, I can try and keep up. So, Bunny, I want to talk to you a little bit about Parish Hadley. Like, What was it like to work there? What were some of the lessons that you learned that then you took out when you went on your own and have been working with ever since?
1: So I started, when I was at Parish Hadley, my first job was being Albert's secretary. And the great thing about that is that you learn how to do the paperwork, how to type the orders, how to get estimates. So you kind of learn the fundamental mechanics of the business. And then I became the shopper where I got to go to all the fabric houses, furniture, anything that I was asked to shop for. And then after a couple of years, I was asked to become an assistant to some of the design projects. What was interesting with Albert is that because he'd been a teacher, when we would sit down on a project and we had a floor plan, he would say, what do you think? How would you put the furniture in it? And of course, all of this was new to us. And you're like, Wow. And then he would correct you. He would point out what you were doing wrong. But he made you think about it in the very beginning instead of just
0: doing it for you. So it was inclusive.
1: It was so inclusive. And he was, you know, the same with he would say, "Okay, well, why don't you put together a fabric scheme for this room? So I would put together things and he would say, where are these fabrics going? What are you going to use them on? he made us think always about what really, you know, was that fabric perfect for curtains? Did it have a a beautiful hand? Or, you know, it wasn't just about color or texture, but what was it going to be used for? So the education was just unbelievable. Mrs. Parrish, on the other hand, was an instinctive designer. She had not been educated. I mean, she didn't even, you know, she ran away from Foxcroft and (laughs) she started her design firm, but she just was instinctive about, she could walk in a room and tell you where the furniture was going to go. She could no more draw a floor plan than fly to the moon. And when she tried to, it was like totally out of proportion it was just instinctive with her. She'd look at a room and she'd say, the sofa's going to go here. I'm going to put two chairs here. We just knew. And she had an incredible sense of scale. And her sensibility was much looser than Albert's. Albert's was very controlled. So it was this exciting kind of dichotomy of two points of view, often in the same project, but was exciting and you just learned so much from it.
0: And which way do you think your process goes? More rigorous or more instinctual? Or both?
1: Down the middle. Down, down the middle. That's good.
0: So you picked up I'm from both down, sides.
1: <laughs> because sometimes Albert was too controlled. You know, it mm-hmm. was too perfect. Mm-hmm. Sometimes her rooms were a little, little loosey-goosey maybe. So I feel that I start with design, but then I'm always wanting to put the throw over the back of the sofa or mix it up a little bit so you don't feel that it's so
0: controlled. Right. One of the things that you always said that I love is it's gotta be a place to put your drink down.
1: Totally, totally. And you know, I always say Mrs. Parish could get more chairs in a room than I ever saw in my life. <laughs> but you know, she was always thinking that there were gonna be lots of people and everyone needed a place to sit. And you do, you sit down in a chair and if you don't have a place to put your water or your glass of wine or whatever, you're miserable. I mean, you can't, you know, sort of don't function. So I think from her, you learn this, you know, sensibility of people being in a room. Albert, on the other hand, often would arrange a room for a serenity and almost a sculptural quality, but nobody could sit in it.
0: Yeah, I think of Albert's rooms often as perfect photographs.
1: Total perfect photographs. Once he had, he used to play around with his own apartment. I mean, the apartment he lived in literally till he died, which was not a grand apartment on 85th Street. But he used to change the living room all the time. And sometimes there was a sofa, sometimes there wasn't. So one time we used to go by after work, and have a visit with him. And I went there once and he'd taken all the furniture out of the living room and there was a round table in the middle of the room with three chairs and a light hanging over the table. And I said, Albert, I feel like I'm in an interrogation room. I'm not coming back until you get a sofa. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he was trying to be as minimal as possible.
0: Right. Because so. he was a more modernist one of the two, clearly. But Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah.
1: And that's what was fun. Albert was always looking for the newest artist, the newest fabric, the newest whatever. And, you know, he instilled in all of us that you can't stay the same. I mean, you can't, first of all, don't do the same thing over and over again. It's boring. And be inventive. Try something exciting.
0: That's a fabulous lesson. And it's kind of to unleash you in a way to try new things. I think it's really exciting. So when you finally went out on your own, How did you get the confidence to do that? Was it scary? I mean, how did that happen for you? Did you, finally you had enough or?
1: Well, no. The interesting thing is that by the time I left, I had my own clients. I mean, over the years.
0: They'd worked with you.
1: Or they recommended me to a friend or Mm -hmm. whatever. So all of a sudden I had my own business. The thing that made me not do it sooner is I was always worried about, the business part of it. You know, Parish Hadley had a they had an accounting office and you didn't have to pay the bills or collect the money or whatever. And I always thought, oh, I hate that. And I was talking to somebody, it was very difficult because I adored both of them and wanted to mm-hmm. work out something, but it was kind of ridiculous to not have it happen. And when I was talking to somebody and I said, I just am so afraid of the business side of it and, and this person said, well, don't you know there are people who love that? And I'm like, really? And <laughs> I immediately went out and found a marvelous lady who had worked in another small business. And she came on board and set up the bookkeeping department, got the business side of it going, because what I wanted to do was the creative part. Right.
0: And I think that's true Today, a lot of people are afraid of the business side. I mean, I know people have programs and apps and stuff, but you still have to have a certain you either have to have an interest in it or an awareness of it if not an interest and you have to find people to help you do it you know and I think absolutely
1: I, and and you learn a lot I mean doing it on your own, I learned so much from you know my accountant and the bookkeeper, and I mean I actually am my accountant says wow you're really good at this. And I'm like, well, I've had some experience, but I've learned from people. And you focus on that side of it, you know, about right how you charge, what the markup is.
0: right? Um, because It is you, business. It's business. And you don't necessarily want to do it, but you need to understand how to do it just so and have, right. have somebody else do it for you. So right. when you were starting out on your own, How difficult was it in that time? Because there were not that many decorating firms. I think decorating, or at least awareness of design and decorating, has increased exponentially over the last few decades. So what was the scene like back then? Was it smaller? What was wonderful
1: is that it was smaller. And because I had worked for so many years at Power Hadley, everybody knew who I was. The fabric houses, the upholsters. I mean, there was no part, no absolutely no problem opening accounts. I mean, the first thing you have to do is go open accounts with everybody. And there was no problem with that because I was not a stranger to the whole world, whether, whether it was Brunswick or Scalamandre or the upholstery showroom. Most people, I knew them because they knew me from the experience I had. And therefore, you've got to go establish your own accounts and this is why the thing about design that's so important, and particularly if you're starting out, is that you know you really have to get deposits from your clients so that you constantly can pay the vendors and that you establish a very good reputation in the business front. And I pat myself on the back because I knew this was important. And everyone I've ever dealt with said, oh, you have the best office. You pay your bills on time and your firm is completely above board about everything. And I think that's just really, really important.
0: It was a very personal touch kind of business at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Very. And it's much bigger now. Yes, it's gotten bigger. But do you think the role of the designer is still the same? I mean, the way people operate may be different, and certainly the influence of design with social media and all that, all the influences on it. But do you think the role is still the same? Because when you started out, I always had this sense that a designer was almost like a social arbiter for many clients, not always. I mean, there were a lot of clients who were perfectly secure. But I I remember reading about that and thinking, oh, in a way that you sort of instructed your clients how to live. Was that a valid assessment? Well, and that
1: still goes on. I mean, certainly you're right. I mean, I think that one of the great things about being at Parish Hadley, in a way, it was one of the last generations of people who really knew how to live. They'd grown up with it. They had a tremendous amount of money. You know, I mean, I saw some of the most extraordinary residences I've ever seen in my life. But more than anything, they were so beautifully run. I mean, everything worked like clockwork. I think today, life has changed a lot. I mean, people live more casually a client will say, well, I have one set of china. I said, one set of china? Why would you have one set of china? You don't want to look at the same plate every meal. So it's just exposure. You know, it's how to set tables, how to make sure that there are flowers in the house. If not flowers, there are plants. It's the fine tuning of a house. You can decorate a room and you can furnish it, but it's the way you make it come alive that makes it personal. And I think today, sometimes we have to give clients the license to do that and show them how to do it.
0: Right. I think in a way, the designer, really good designers are kind of instructors in that sense. Oh, sure. And is that something that came naturally to you because of you growing up in Virginia and you had a sense of how people want to live? And because one of the things that have always impressed me about you is how you through your entire career integrated you know indoor outdoor which is now very trendy and you're a passionate gardener and your garden is famous and much photographed but it's almost like if you can live outside you can live inside is that something that you've thought about actively during your career or just something that was innate to you I
1: think that I do go way back to growing up in the South, growing up in Virginia, where people were very, very hospitable. People entertained a lot. They loved entertaining. They loved having cocktail buffets. My mother loved to entertain. She loved her garden. There was just a a feeling of going to somebody's house and being welcomed. And I loved that. I loved it when I was a child, you know, and in the South, you mixed ages all the time. I mean, you often went as a family and the kids went off to play together or the teenagers went off, but you were always included. And maybe part of what we do is trying to remember our past if our past was fun. Mm-hmm. The indoor outdoor thing is when you live in a beautiful climate, you can have a screen porch in the North or you have a great loggia in Florida. It's just so wonderful on a pretty day to go outside and yes it's probably my love of gardens but now that spring is coming I mean yesterday was the most beautiful day I want to be outside as much as I want to be inside so you want to make places that people are comfortable outside that they can be and enjoy the trees and the lawn and whether there's a garden but just hearing the birds. Right.
0: But I always think of you because it's become such a, a like, a phenomenon, in the, especially since the pandemic, that people are spending more time at home, and, you know, there's apparently been a flood of people leaving the city and buying suburban homes because they want to be outside. They can't be confined, you know, when you don't go in an office and you're confined to a small apartment. But I always think of you as being one of the early um, proponents of that, because... Well, I remember...
1: Yeah, John and I opened Treyage 25 right. years ago. Right. You know, there were no garden shops and, you know, maybe it was longer than that. And we were in England at the Chelsea Flower Show and we got the idea to open this wonderful shop we had for 20 years that was indoor outdoor. And I've always loved nature. I love gardens and birds and air. And I do think a lot of you're absolutely right. I think a lot of urban dwellers have realized when they got out of the city, wow, this is nice.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, not that the city doesn't have its advantages, and we love the city. We love it. Right. But if you're fortunate enough to be able to have both or high end of one, but I think this gardening thing, and I, I just think it must be kind of amusing to you how many people now are fascinated with gardens and with your garden in particular. And I know you often put it on the Garden Conservancy Tour and you have events there to raise money for various charities. And I just think that it's so amusing that your vision of life has won out in that sense, Bunny. And I think you should.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's so funny is that they talk about this a shortage of copper and plywood. There's a total shortage of trees and nurseries. Totally. You cannot you cannot buy a hemlock. Right. I mean, it's just insane.
0: No, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal recently about people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to have mature trees moved often by helicopter into their properties because <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. Now, in your career, you have seen many, for lack of a better word, we'll call trends come and go. And also with your involvement with Kips Bay Showhouse over the many years, you have seen styles come and go, talents come, not some have gone, but most are still around. So I wanted to get a sense from you. What do you think have been the lasting changes in design in the last couple of decades? The things that you still like? Some things we've seen go, I remember in the 80s, Majolica was everywhere, and then it disappeared, but now it seems to be coming back. But I, I just want to get a sense from what are the things that you have loved working with and your, I know you're a lover and, and antiques in general, but if there's.
1: I think that, as you pointed out, everything that's a fad goes out, but it comes back later. So if you're around long enough, I mean, think about in the 80s, we had totally overdone Over fabric, over tasselled, over velvet—you know, complicated room. And then we went to all white for so long. Now we seem to be back into strong colors, and so it's all cyclical. I mean, it's just so interesting when you're in it for as long as I've been in it. You see it all come and go. I think the thing for me is. I don't think decorating should be a fad because it's too expensive. It's not like buying a dress that, okay, it went out of style, but it really wasn't that bad. To me, decorating and design, if you really are good at it and if you care about your clients, you educate them and you bring them to have their own sense of how they're living. Remember... I don't live in their house. They do. And I want them to love it and to, 10 years later, not to feel that it was dated. Mm -hmm. That's why I think we need to have some restraint. We need to have good design, good balance. I mean, look at rooms that are classic and people refer to them in Pinterest all the time. I'm like, Oh, my God, if I see that room one more time. But it was beautiful, (laughs) you know? There are things that are classic. And I think what we should be doing as designers is thinking not that it's trendy, but that we want a room to stand the test of time, to be interesting enough, to have different things in it. That's why I like to mix antiques and modern furniture in the same room or modern art even hang modern art with traditional art, things Mm -hmm. that you don't quite know, it's not a look, it's an assemblage of interesting things. And then I think you don't get bored with it. Right. And it stands the test of time, because if it's too much of a thing, it's going to get dated really fast. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna
0: Brockway and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's
1: C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show.
0: And how do you approach, like, the architecture of a room, the scale of a room? Because, as I quoted Anna Brockway, she said, you do the best floor plans. But, you, you know, if you move things in and you can move them out, classic things are going to last. But how do you approach creating the outline of the room? Is that something that you think about? Do you work with interior architects on this? Is it All,
1: all the time. I mean, I now, most of my projects, I spend a third, if not more, of the time on the architecture. I mean, so many clients are building houses. And yes, I work, I obviously work with some wonderful architects that I've worked for for years that have a sense of scale and proportion. But I've also been in projects where the architect maybe had a good sense on the exterior, but no sense of the interior. None. And you're, like no, you can't put the door there. It's got to be over here, and you've got to have the flow work this way. That's why I'm on the board of the Institute of Classical Architecture, I said so many young architects are not even taught how to do a floor plan
0: right and And that's another thing that I want to bring up is education because you had a, a phenomenal education at Parish Hadley. But how do you think young people today who are interested in design, Should they go to design school? We did an episode about this. Should they become active members of the ICA? What's the way for them to learn that works the best, do you think?
1: I do think that you should spend a couple of years in design school simply to learn the mechanics. Mm -hmm. Today, design schools teach CAD. They teach a lot of the important things That I don't know how to do. I mean, I draw by hand. I think that one should learn that. I think it's scale, proportion. What bothers me is that in the end, design schools are not teaching to create the new me. Because if you look at the entire design world, the residential interior designer is a very small percentage. Right. Right, Most people out of a design school, they do corporate work, hotel work, Mm -hmm. tons of other design work. So I think that, you know, it's like the interns. We have interns a couple every year and they love coming to our office because even though they're learning CAD and they're learning a lot there in our office, they're seeing these schemes put together. They're being sent to an antique store. We take them to the jobs we're working on. So that's pretty exciting education.
0: But you're saying that a lot of the design schools sort of give interior design, residential design, short shrift.
1: I don't think they go into it like they did when Stanley Barrows was there, when Albert was teaching, because I think they have to think a lot about where their students are going to get jobs. Right, right.
0: Although... Corporate office design, who knows what that's gonna be undergoing a big change with know, People people going know. back to offices and even restaurants. Hospitality, hospitality. hotels. Hopefully that's gonna change. But
1: yeah, it'll come back, but it's yeah, not it's it, gonna take over. Not while. hopping next week.
0: Right. Now you had mentioned classic pieces. So classic is a word we all love, but it, it can be a little amorphous. So at the moment, what pieces are you looking at? that maybe have been out of style, as we were saying about coming back, are there things that you're particularly entranced by at the moment, like, I don't know, Georgian furniture or things that you, well, you
1: know. Well, I went yesterday to look at Stare Auction and there's Niall Smith, whose shop is closed. and I there, love You Niall. know, he's thing. I love Niall. I and mean, he's, you know, he's been in business for 45 years with yeah. extraordinary neoclassical taste. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I looked at these Blue John Obelisk That's a classic, beautiful accessory. And it can look good in a modern house. It can look good anywhere. An incredible bust, you know, a marble bust, a beautiful marble urn. I mean, these things are just, they are classics. And you look at it and think, wow. And then, you know, you go into a shop and there's this beautiful English sofa table with the most beautiful rosewood you've ever seen you can't even buy rosewood that looks like that.
0: Right. And I'm right. thinking
1: this table isn't even that expensive. And right. why are we going to buy manufactured? I mean, listen, Bunny Williams Home makes furniture. Right? I'm in it. But I'm looking at this going, wow,
0: this you table's
1: so beautiful.
0: You can't and, match it, you know? You can, and not. that
1: table 20 years ago would have been three times the price.
0: Right. Right. Because antique market is really, I think it's coming back a little bit. It really went low. And I think that actually online sites like Cherish, whatever, has increased the interest in vintage and it's certainly more sustainable. But I do think there's also been an emphasis on mid-century and post-World War II design that I think has left out a big part of Design history, and I'm hoping that that's shifting back. Do you have any sense that that's the case?
1: Oh, I do. And but what's interesting is I remember Robs John Gibbons, whose furniture I love. You know, he designed for it was uh, commercially made furniture. Yes, but one of the beautiful, big beautiful right. design. You used to be able to buy that for eight hundred dollars a table. Now that table is. because people are beginning to see it, see the designs, and that the value of that's gone up. And again, this is the whole thing about furniture that is so interesting that something that if you're ahead of the curve or not in what's fashionable, you can buy well. And if it becomes fashionable, there are certain things like Giacometti furniture. I mean, that sale Last week, it was off the charts, but right. they, that is one of a kind furniture. I mean, right.
0: and they're artworks essentially,
1: and they're know. a piece of art and it right. will never lose its value. Right. And it also looks good and it looks beautiful with people's contemporary art collections. Right. Knowledge. Again, I think the thing that's so important for a designer, if they really want to go to the top of the profession is to learn about furniture know it, study it, look at it. I mean, you can't, you train your eye, and that's essential to really making interesting rooms, putting interesting rooms together, I think. Right.
0: And the other thing I wanted to ask you about was sort of design influencers, because when I was young and when you were young, It was really the shelter magazines. There were more of them back then, but they had a real power and influence. And then many of the newspapers also covered design. I remember there was, for many years, the New York Times, for example, had a home section every week and covered design. And when Kips Bay was opening, you get four pages. Ten pages, sure. It was a big thing. Now, obviously, media has changed and social media has come along. The Internet has changed all of that and now there's Pinterest and Instagram and everything, and that's, like you were saying, sharing classic rooms, designers sharing their own work. Do you think it's harder for a younger person to figure out what's good or what's not good?
1: Well, there are two things <laughs> that I feel very strongly about. What Instagram allows people to do is to create themselves. Right. When we were coming along, you didn't have that, and you were dependent on the shelter magazine,
0: right, the editor's there,
1: and they only had i mean you know this they only had so many stories
0: right. a month right, and
1: if you didn't have that, that's why you just couldn't wait to get into a magazine right well, right, today it's different, and a young person they can go on Instagram and they can get followers. I don't know how they do it, but you right. know all of a sudden. Who is this person? And it's because they've really figured out that part of it. So people get to be well-known without needing to be in a magazine. Yes, they'd like to be in there, but they also can create a persona for themselves. What bothers me is that there are too many rooms being reproduced over and over and over again. By designers, Mm -hmm. and that comes from Pinterest. That comes from, okay, we've done these classic rooms, shown them, and then the young designer uses that as their inspiration. It's too obvious, you know. You kind of go, okay, I've seen Lee Radzwill's bedroom five times in fifty different,
0: (laughs) right? Different fabric patterns, whatever, but the idea is the same.
1: And that's that to me gets boring. Right,
0: You know, it used to be with the shelter magazines, the editors were arbiters of taste. They would decide what was to go in. But I think they also, in a way, mentored the designers that they felt were talented and could give them instructions. Now, I mean, it's great. Like you said, you can create your own persona. You can create your own brand. People like to call themselves brands. You can create your own brand and everything. So, yes, you don't have to wait for the editor, but at the same time, you're not going to have the editor assign a photographer. You've got to hire the photographer yourself. You've got to do that. And that's, a, that's hard. You have to become your own marketer and your own editor, and that's a hard thing to do as well as being designer. So I think that there is more freedom for the designers, but I think it's harder for them to maybe learn.
1: The only thing is they are much savvier about it than
0: you and I are. That's true. That's, you should see me on Instagram.
1: I post every now and then a picture, but I'm like, okay. I mean, I obviously have someone in my office who does it. It's so important to our business. And we have Shannon who's extraordinary and she writes stories and we go through what she's going to do. I frankly don't have time, nor do I know how to do it, but they think differently. They're totally, I mean, I've had young people who came to work for me? Who've gone on to have their own firms, and I could see, even working with me, how they had figured out Instagram and how it was going to promote them. And it's in their blood. I mean, it's right. just completely so hard. It's they've got to spend a lot of time at it, but I think they really enjoy it.
0: Mm-hmm. It comes. It's an eight for them. They kind of get it's it. an eight. but okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but is the sense of design innate? Or are they spending too much time selling the design rather than creating the design? What do you think?
1: That's going to be interesting. (laughs) You know, (laughs) well, I I can't tell. I mean, I think, yes, I think good design is innate. Great design is something you've really got to work on and get out of doing, you know, I never... For instance, if I'm starting on a new project, I never do a board for it, an inspiration board, ever.
0: I go to the
1: house, I talk to the client, I stand and look at where I am, what's the style of the house. I'm totally motivated by where I think this project
0: should go, not by cutting out pictures of other rooms. Right. But did we clients expect presentation boards from you in terms of, like, later on fabrics and, you know, the usual things oh, that we I do see? That. Yeah, I mean, you do but, that. But, but, but I not an in overall inspiration thing at in the beginning.
1: No, what I do is the old-fashioned way. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, I'd like a beautiful rug for this room. I go find the rug. Mm-hmm. And then I put fabrics to go with it. But I'm not trying to copy some room I saw, I'm basing it on some extraordinary rug I found, or we just finished this big contemporary apartment at 432 Park Avenue. I mean, it's every very thing, very modern, modern rug. But I designed guess. the rugs. I, you know, I worked with rug companies and I looked at it mm-hmm. and I thought, well, this is what I want it to be. But what was interesting is though it's a very modern apartment and All the new furniture is quite modern. The client had some extraordinary 18th century furniture, which I've put in there. And that's what makes it look, first of all, it makes the furniture so exciting. Mm -hmm. And it makes the apartment more exciting than if it were just all modern furniture.
0: You just brought up something I want to ask you a little bit more about. You just said you did this very modern apartment. I plead innocent on this score. But I know a lot of people think, oh, Bunny Williams is very traditional. But I know, I've seen enough of your work to know that you can do a range of styles. But do you find that frustrating that people want to like, and not just you, it's a lot of designers. They want to, you know, peg this one is modern, that one's traditional, this one's far out. Why does that happen and how do you fight that?
1: It's hard. It's very hard because people think, oh, Bunny Williams, it's a you know, old lady chinch room. And I'm like, "Uh, I don't think so.
0: You've (laughs) never really done much chintz, you
1: know? You know, I'm not Mario, you know, I didn't do that. So, And I think the thing that I am very proud of is that I really hope that when somebody walks into this apartment, they don't think that I did it. They just go, wow.
0: When you walk in and say, oh, you have a lovely home, not... Not, oh, is it, it's like when a woman wearing a beautiful dress, you don't, you want to say, oh, you look beautiful in that dress. Not like, oh, I love your Prada.
1: Exactly. You're absolutely right. It's the woman who wears the dress instead of the dress wearing the lady. And you want a room or any home to be one that people walk in and go, I like this. This is comfortable. And later they could say, well, did you have a decorator? I mean, (laughs) or
0: something. Right. How did you pull together this fabulous place, you know? Or whatever. Right.
1: But I think the interesting thing is, though you come back to the floor plan, the one thing I am consistent on is arrangements of furniture, that people can be, talk to each other, that they're comfortable with each other. I've never understood, I really don't understand 18 foot long sofas. I mean, I feel like I'm in a subway car.
0: Right. And and it's interesting. I remember Stephen Sills once told me, he said, you can get a long sofa, but at a party, there's rarely ever more than two people sit on a sofa at a time,
1: no matter how big it is. And people say, oh, that's great for entertaining. And I'm like, really? You know, (laughs) a sofa long enough for six people to line up? (laughs) What kind of entertainment is that? (laughs) Well, it's hard to talk. You know what it's like. If you've got one person to to your right and your left, it's like being at a dinner table. So you turn and talk to one person, then you're ignoring the person on the other side. So I think people have to think that way. You know, I don't have huge parties anymore. And frankly, if I have a huge party,
0: everybody stands up. Exactly. A big cocktail party, which is fun. But I guess one of my other questions here, and I don't know the answer to this, and I don't expect you to have an answer, but maybe an opinion, is like, do you think too much of decorating now is done for the photography? For, and so it looks good on Instagram, so look good on the pages of a magazine, as opposed to a room is a three-dimensional space that you move through, and maybe there's not enough attention to pay to that. What do you think?
1: I think you might be right that people try to do something over the top to hopefully get it in a magazine. I don't know. I mean,
0: I look good on Instagram, you know, like, ooh. Right, right.
1: But then you kind of go, oh dear. And the sad thing for magazines, as you know, is that they need to sell a lot of copies. And there's obviously a draw to having celebrities in your magazines, which isn't always the best. But Right,
0: the best design, right.
1: They have to think about, you know, I don't know. I, I just find it very interesting. I think the shelter magazines are having a hard time. And yet, you look at a magazine like World of Interiors, and it's very thick, filled mm-hmm. with ads, and there's not one decorated house in it.
0: hmm Well, every now and then there is. But, but you're right. But, you're right. It's not I mean, they've got that. gypsy carts. Right. Got, I know. They you know, do. They have council they flats do. sometimes. Yeah, which I love.
1: And they've got just a different point of view. And yet, there are a lot of ads in
0: there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they have a lot of designers reading the magazine because I think designers yes, yes. are open in a way because of their education and their knowledge. They're more open to various different things. And I guess that's kind of my dilemma. My question here is, like, I think design has become democratized via the Internet and all of this stuff and, and the glamour of it. People have this idea that it's a glamorous life and there's been movies and TV shows about it and all that. So I guess my question is, how do you maintain quality even as Design world becomes more democratic. And Bunny, if no one else could come up with an answer, you could. I mean, what do you what do you think is important that needs to be maintained in the face of all this technological change and the, the role of the influencer changing?
1: I think you have to stick to quality and good design. And in a way, sometimes you have to ignore. I mean, I don't look at things I don't like. You just have to constantly be in your own head. If you're a good designer about the quality of design, the the information people come to you like you go to a doctor, you want him to be well educated. Right. And a good designer, I mean, I do now almost all my work is repeat work. I mean, I've done five projects for clients because they trust me because I come, not only do I get the job done and it's hopefully beautiful and finished Mm -hmm. on time, but I, feel it's my responsibility to give them the best advice I can. And that comes from experience and knowledge. And when you're confident, you can try different things. You know, Mm -hmm. you can think, oh, maybe I'll do a lavender room. You have the confidence to try things. And that's why experience helps. I think that when you say it's been democratized, my only fear, it's been maybe it's the same phrase, it's been watered down a lot because so many people are copying so many things that they've seen on Pinterest or Instagram or whatever, instead of creating their own Mm -hmm. vision for something.
0: Well, one of the things that I'm hearing through all of this that you're saying is it's almost like for really good design, you have to be there, whether it's, In the showrooms, feeling the fabric, in the stores, seeing the furniture, talking to the clients, being in the room. I mean, if you're ordering these rugs, you're finding rugs and you're having rugs designed, you have to know the size of the room. And, you know, you you have to experience 3D. And I think, you know, as the world has become more virtual and listen, we're talking over Zoom here or whatever, and it's all technological. But I think those primary things about actually touching, feeling and being in a space— remain as crucial as ever.
1: What I find interesting is, yes, there's this technology where you can go in the computer and walk through a space. You can do a virtual feeling of Mm -hmm. a room. Unfortunately, the computers or the programmer, they can't really put in a unique piece of furniture because it takes too long to program that. So the furniture ends up being sort of generic.
0: Right. Like in those real estate ads, everything that's virtual, Uh, it's all of the same, you know?
1: All the same. And when I remember, and unfortunately, I do not have his gift, but Albert used to draw, I'm sure you saw some of his sketches, Mm -hmm. and he would sit in a room and do a black and white sketch of what he wanted the room to look like. And it was all illusional. I mean, it was you knew it was a french chair but it could have been this or it could have been that the sofa was here he did these very quickly and those drawings had a soul
0: yeah
1: and you looked at it and you went yes i get it you don't get it with these virtual Renderings. We just did one for a client, and I kept saying, Your room won't look like this. I mean, it won't. You know, I just sort of hated it because there was a dining table and some chairs and a rug, but it wasn't what we have for the room because they can't put in that exact. It makes us want to go back to renderings and drawings, and because in a way, that room doesn't exist. And with me, I can't do a rendering of a room when I start the project because I'm not sure what I'm going to find
0: right. to go into but that it's room. Right, going to be there. Yeah, so funny. I think, you know, Bunny, I can't thank you enough for this. It's been, you're such a font of wisdom and support for the industry. And I, I've always found that so inspiring how you help so many younger designers and your work at Kips Bay and the, your other charities that you do. And you're sharing with our audience here today all of your wisdom has just been such a wonderful thing. And I thank you so much for being part of the Cherish podcast. Thank well, you, I
1: love being a part of it and I love going on Cherish. Oh, I must great. say, the problem with all of this is I spend much more time on my computer <laughs> than I ever did, but it's really exciting.
0: Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Bunny. Thank you. You've been listening to The Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherished Podcast is produced by Britter Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.